You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. So good to see Pastor Bill up there. Um, Miss him and can't wait to have him really back in the building. I know he's been very busy, very active. Uh, This past week I took about two hours of his time. Um, But I can't wait to have him back here and continue to rally and pray around them. Um, as they prepare to, to bring little Theo into the world and, and, and wish Pastor the best with his recovery, obviously, as that keeps going. Can I just say how awesome you guys are? You guys are so awesome. Let me tell you, um, so many words of encouragement. I mean, it's never easy to really stand up before a large crowd, and, and uh, even when it's not about you, right, because this is really all about the goodness of God and what God has done through my life, but... I still have to deliver it somehow. (laughs) So um, the reality is that having you being able to speak in sort of this living room environment uh, with my family is just such an amazing thing. And uh, I pray that my testimony encourages you, but most importantly, that you would sense the Father's love uh, that is embodied, yes, in this body, but that you would sense the Father's love even through the love story uh, that he's allowed me to so far partake with him. Um, because it's always like a to be continued, right? We, we, we come to the Lord, um, and then he continuously refines us. And, uh, and so I, I, um, I'm so grateful for that. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to open up in a word of prayer um, just to um, invite the Father. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to speak before your people today, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that I get to share your goodness, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give me steady speech, Lord God, that you would allow me to put myself to the side, Lord, and just share of your goodness, Lord. Father, I thank you for your people this morning, Lord. I pray that we would open our ears, open our hearts, Lord God, to your word, Lord, and what you have for us. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, there's a lot that I can unpack. Um, I come from uh, a charismatic background, um, evangelical background, and generally speaking, they try to get you to give your testimony like 10 minutes, and so uh, if I start racing through parts, bear with me. Um, it's what I'm usually accustomed to, um, but pastor has given me a little bit more time than I am accustomed to, so today we'll probably get to talk about some things that I really never get to share about, um, albeit... Um, you know, things that are very significant, very important in my life, um, things that involve even you guys uh, who have, who have uh, you know, partaken and also helped Elizabeth and I through very seasons and very hard seasons, even seasons that we're going through right now. And so um, I want to start by giving you a little bit of history, a little bit of a background, uh, just so that you can sort of understand um, some of the decisions that I made and and some of the um, ramifications of those decisions. Um, I didn't ask to be born to any particular family, and I know that's the case for everyone in this room. Uh, We don't pick where where we're born. We don't pick to whom we're born. We don't pick where we're going to live. And as children, we kind of just adapt to what we have and what we're given. And uh, and obviously, I was no exception. I was, uh, I am the youngest of three sons raised by a single mother. Um, we were raised in, in probably one of the roughest neighborhoods in New York City. Uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, East New York. 
um, at one of the most tumultuous times in the city's history. I was raised up during the crack epidemic, and um, it was a time where crime and poverty was just so rampant in our city. I mean, you would walk out and you would see bodies, and if they weren't slain by drugs, they were slain by violence. And this was a reality for me. This is why when I hear people say, well, I'm a product of my environment, I know sometimes we say, well, you can overcome your environment, but the reality is, is when, when it's all you know, chances are you will probably fall to what you know. Not having a father in the home didn't help. Uh, we turned to the streets, both uh, myself, obviously, and my brothers. My brothers being older than me tended to be my, my male role models. They were the people that I looked up to the most. Unfortunately, they um, did things that I know today they wouldn't be proud of. And those are the things that I looked up to. I remember as a kid, I, I, I had what I thought was a normal childhood in the sense that, um, you know, we'd play tag, we'd do, we'd play manhunt, and we'd, you know, we'd run through the streets uh, causing all kinds of mayhem, nothing criminal yet, um, but just being kids and enjoying life, what we thought we were enjoying. And it wasn't about video games because back then, you know, nor could we afford them, but we just, you know, those things weren't out like that. And so kids played with each other. They interacted with one another. But then, you know, as we got older, my brothers got more involved in the streets. I, I, I began to see those, those other real male role models that existed within the neighborhood all of them being drug dealers, all of them being murderers, these are the people that I tended to look up to. You know, of course I had like Saturday WWF where I wanted to be like the ultimate warrior or I wanted to be like Hulk Hogan or someone, but those things were, were, were surreal, right? Those things weren't real, we knew they were fake. What was real was what we looked at when we walked out the door every day, when we stepped out, that was real. And as a young kid, I remember being very involved. Um, I was exploited, probably I could say I was exploited now in some ways because um, I was sort of paid to play with drug dealers often. Uh, even as a six, seven-year-old, I remember playing with them and they would give me money and, I, and, I, and I, I thought they just loved me and wanted to give me money. In all actuality, they were using me so that the police wouldn't um, think they were doing anything wrong. And my mom knew this. Um, she was lost. She was a very young parent. She had her first child at 14. And, um, and she was doing the best she could. And us being poor um, didn't really feel poor to us. I knew I didn't have things. I didn't have things that other people had. But my mom always made sure that we had gifts under the tree. And she would do that sometimes in ways that she's not proud to say she did it. But we never, we never won a Christmas without looking under the tree and seeing a presence there or, 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 you know, seemingly having a happy life within a really bad situation. As the years continued, my brothers, um, luckily for me, being the youngest, my brothers were, were, uh, were very well known. My oldest brother in particular uh, was very respected in our neighborhood. Uh, we were of lighter skin tone, if you get what I mean. Um, in my neighborhood, and um, my brother was notorious for just doing some really bad things. And so I didn't have to deal with, like, being bullied and stuff as a kid, so I would kind of, like, get by just on, like, his reputation and what he did and all the things that he was about. 
But around like my 13th, 14th uh, birthday, my brother was removed um, from us for a time. And my other brother was also removed from us for a time. And so now here I am trying to find myself um, within the sort of reputation that they had and wanting to build my own reputation. And I started getting involved with some really bad people. I went from, you know, doing crazy things that kids do to now committing crimes. I first got involved with people who were um, stick-up artists. They were called stick-up boys. What they would essentially do is um, they would seek out other drug dealers, so they would seek out, um, not, not like victims. I mean, I wasn't like going after old ladies and stuff. But we would find like people who were drug dealers and we would, we would set them up in some way. Either we would send someone to scope out the land and check what they have, and then eventually, through violence, we would take what they had. And this is what I got involved in at a very early age. And I wasn't directly doing some of the stuff. Most of the time, I was the guy who was just watching out, checking it out, and some bad things obviously happened. And then from there, I started doing other things. I got involved uh, in the drug game myself. Um, I never had a problem having connections because my older brother was very involved, as I previously said, and so people trusted our name, they trusted um, the reputation, and so I was able to, to, to gain drugs mostly on consignment most of the time. Uh, for those of you that don't know what consignment is, you don't have to pay anything up front. You always pay back a percentage of, of what you make. And so the name was good, and so we were able to do those things. And eventually, that life progressively, you know, taking me through, I became very cold, very angry, a very angry kid. And I started getting to a point in my life where I really started to feel like I didn't care about anybody else anymore. I couldn't care about anybody else anymore because I, I had become indoctrinated with this belief that nobody cared about me, so why should I care about you? And so I continued in that path. I started doing some things, more and more things, and eventually, I, one thing I wasn't really good at was staying out of jail. And um, I think by the time I was 16, 17, I had been on Rikers Island maybe 12 times or something like that. I can't even tell you the number. It was so many times that when I would come in through the reception area, the, the correction officer that was there, he was like a, like a lifer or something. He was like a, you know, someone who, who obviously, it was his career, and he would say to me, again? Again? I'd say, I didn't do it, man. I didn't do it. <laughs> and a lot of times, to be honest with you, the things that I did do, I didn't get caught for, but I did get caught up a lot of times in things that I didn't do. And by the age of 17, I was fighting two cases. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit so that we can get going here. But by the age of 17, I was now fighting two cases simultaneously, one in Brooklyn, where I was raised, obviously, and one in the Bronx, where... Um, we had come to live uh, within these last couple of years, um, trying to move everything from Brooklyn to the Bronx because obviously, even though my physical location changed, my lifestyle didn't change. And so now I was trying to bring this where I was now. I was in a new place, but I just brought my old baggage with me. And here we were now in the Bronx, and, and, and again, fighting two cases now. Um, the judge in Brooklyn caught wind of the second case in the Bronx and decided enough was enough with this kid. You see, just a few months previously, I was facing um, years. I won't get into the charges, but I was facing years in prison. 
And this judge looked at me with mercy and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you a break, kid. I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you a chance. And what I ultimately ended up doing with that chance was going back out to the streets and doing exactly what I had been doing previously. And so eventually, the judge in Brooklyn catches wind of this situation, and she says, enough is enough. She remands me. She incarcerates me. And so now here I am, 17 years old, not understanding the gravity of what was happening. And the case in the Bronx was serious as well and involved multiple gun charges. And I was now facing what I thought was going to be probably the rest of my life in prison. Now, the good thing is being 17 years old, the system tended to, to have some mercy. And this judge looked at me and she said, you know, I am going to send you to prison. This is going to happen but I'm gonna give you a youthful offender status, which means that eventually when you do get out of prison, you'll have, a, you'll have what's a semblance of a second chance. The problem is that the case in the Bronx, I actually caught a break because the case in the Bronx, they gave me what was called a concurrent sentence. And so I didn't have to do any additional time for the case that I had closed in Brooklyn, but that second felony didn't qualify for that youthful offender status. And I didn't understand that. Again, 17 years old, you're not understanding the gravity, the damage that you've now done to your life. And so here I am going into an adult prison, young kid. And if you look at me, I don't, I don't look intimidating. So I walk into this place and everybody's testing me. I remember my brother, his only advice to me was, first person that looks at you, hit him. And this is what I did for two and a half years. I fought, fought, clawed, clawed, clawed. I fought. Fort, fort. Prison is no easy place. I was uh, telling George just last week, the first prison I landed in up here was um, Downstate Correctional Facility. It's a receiving hub. I remember vividly being in, um, in Downstate Correctional Facility. It was actually the first time I saw a skunk in person, <laughs> and uh, it was the first time I got sprayed by a skunk in person. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So um, I, it, it's the, in, in uh, downstate, you have what's called pods. They're like these, it was like, um, I don't know, like these two-level pods, and there's cells, and it's one man to a cell. Um, you have these little windows that you can crank, and so you can look out and get fresh air. It was much better than the conditions in Rikers Island, which were uh, horrendous, and I understand they've probably just gotten worse, but back then they were horrendous. And I remember opening my window one night, and I would always throw Oreo cookies at the, uh, at the skunks, and they, they like to eat Oreos. So <laughs> if you ever want to catch a skunk, stick an Oreo in a, in a, in a little, I don't want to say a trap, I guess it would be like a save a heart or whatever. Um, but one night, there was another inmate on top. He knew I would always feed the skunks. He takes one of those Corecraft soap bars, and throws it down, and he hits the skunk, and the skunk sprays me. And man, oh man, welcome upstate New York. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to Paul, uh, I'm sorry, George's home. I asked George, uh, oh, you know, this is a beautiful home. Uh, and I said, what's back there? I see like this fence back there. He says, downstate correctional facility. And I was immediately taken back because I remembered the time when I was there. I would have never thought in a million years that I would be at a, a life group or a Bible study on the other side of that fence. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about how I got there. I, I, I even got into trouble in prison, believe it or not. Um, I would regularly be sent to the box for fighting or for just getting involved in stupid things. Prison in and of itself is a different world. It is a world in and of itself. There is a, a trade, there's an exchange that takes place in there. Uh, obviously a lot of violence. Um, some of the things that I had thought, some of the uh, misconceptions I had were, you know, the things you see on TV, like the rape and stuff like that. Those things probably happened, they didn't happen to me, they didn't happen around me. Uh, but the violence, the sheer amount of anger, um, those things were very real. Um, yet they, these were some of the most talented people I had ever been around. I met some of the best artists, some of the, the best poets, the best people that I've ever known in my life I probably met in prison. These were people that, that I pray God got a hold of them because they would be an incredible contribution to the kingdom of God. Just something to think about for our, for our prisoners. And there was a time where, there was this one time I got in trouble again, and uh, my mom, she was the only person. Now, remember when I told you we were very well known in the streets. I thought I had a million friends. I thought, um, you know, we were very well known, and so I would do anything for anybody, and I felt the same about the people that I grew up with. But when I, when I, when I got incarcerated, when I, when I uh, went in there, everybody turned their back on me. I don't think they meant to turn their backs on me. It's just like this, soul, this, this whole sort of out of sight, out of mind experience that occurs. And the only person that was there for me was my mom. The only person. The same woman that I cursed at, the same woman that I treated like garbage most of the time, was the only person that was there for me. And one time, I ended up in something called the, um, there's a place up here, it's called the, uh, well, they're called shoes, but um, there's, um, I'm forgetting the name of them, but actually here in Fishkill, you actually have one. It's one of few in New York State. Um, it's a 23-hour lockdown, and the only one hour that you get to come out is through the back of your cell. There's a cage um, that you walk out into. And I remember walking into this place because most shoes, you actually end up in a cell by yourself in segregation. This one was a little bit different because there was another man in the room with you. But everything was in that room with you. Your shower, your toilet, and your two little beds. And so everything you did, you did with this other man. I happened to just end up with a man who was extremely broken, who was going through the loss of his mother while he was incarcerated. And very similar to my story, he, he wasn't very good to his mom. And now he was dealing with the pain and the anguish of not having been a better son. And here I am, probably going on my eight, probably 18 at this point, and I'm listening to this grown man sit there and cry in front of me. And part of me was just laughing at him, but another part of me started to feel his pain. Because as you, again, as you're exposed to this, you now start thinking, am I a good son to my mom? I remember <clears throat> my mom coming to see me while I was in the box. And um, what, would, uh, what would happen in this particular uh, segregation place was that they would bring you to your visit chained to your waist. And that was very different, because if you've ever visited anyone up here, generally speaking, you know, they come with no restraints. 
but this one place had tiers at like levels. And the first level, you would have to come down to your visits behind a glass and in restraints. And I remember coming in and I see my mom and there she is, faithful as always. Um, she walks over and she brings me these little frozen cheeseburgers that they have there. And um, they don't remove the restraints for you to eat. So she tries to pass the cheeseburger through the little uh, window thing that they have there. And I take it and I try to eat it and it falls on the floor. Now, this is not McDonald's. They're not going to give you another one. And she starts crying just uncontrollably. It was at that moment that I realized that the decisions that I was making was destroying my mother, destroying her. My two older brothers were no better, but for some reason it was becoming more real for her with her youngest child sitting behind a cage. Something happened, though, with my mom while I was there. My mom came to know Jesus. My mom started attending a church broken by her situation, having finally hit rock bottom. She, uh, she starts attending a church uh, called Manhattan Grace Tabernacle. It was a sister church of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And she starts telling me about this Jesus that she found. Now, little did she know, I, I had started to sense that there was a God while I was there, but I was still very hard, very cold. And I was still around an environment and an atmosphere where religion was looked at as a weakness, as a sign of weakness. It was a, it was a crutch, so to speak. And so me wanting to uh, embody this, this persona that I thought I had, I continued to try to forego what she was saying to me, just not listen. And my mom would constantly tell me about how awesome this Jesus was that she found. And I was happy for her. I was really, really happy for her. Because my mom has an even more incredible testimony than me. This is to say that when the Bible says that the prayers of the righteous, right? What it says about the prayers of the righteous? Right? My mom began to pray while I was sitting in there. And the time came for me to come home finally. It was a lot that obviously happened in prison. We don't want to unpack that, but if you ever want to have a cup of coffee, we could talk about that. Um, the time came for me to come home, and it's now almost three years later, and um, I'm as, obviously as excited as can be, not really knowing what was, uh, what was um, waiting for me, so to speak. Um, I remember coming home, and uh, immediately you guys had moved over to Metro Cards. When I went in, I was, uh, and now the Metro Cards are going away, right? Uh, but I, when I went away, there were still tokens. And so I came home, and, 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 and I'm trying to purchase tokens. And uh, the guy tells me, no, we use Metro Cards now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know how I got home that day. But I came home, and my mom, who didn't have much, but at this point had had started uh, a nursing career. Um, she had actually started working as a CNA in a nursing home close to our home. And uh, she didn't have much, but, you know, she, she made sure that when I came home, I had clothes, I had a place to stay. Um, just such a great mom. Even when I think about it today, my, I, I'm internally indebted, not only because she brought me into this world, but just, just such a loving mom. 
And I came home and, uh, you know, obviously very excited. You know, I, I was willing to do anything she'd say, obviously. And the only thing that my mom asked me to do was to go with her. Uh, I came home on a Monday, go with her to a Tuesday night prayer meeting. I said, all right, no problem. That's all you want. So we go to this prayer meeting. And I remember walking into the room. And so, you know, when you walk into Sunday service, generally it's well lit. Tuesday night prayer meetings were a little more dark. Um, so I walked into this room like, what is this? Like, this is a funeral. So, <laughs> but I remember, and it's funny because you got all these lights right now. There weren't many lights on, but I could see this sort of, um, this sort of illumination in the room for some reason when I walked in. And I brought a buddy with me for backup. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think they were going to try to get me, but I, you know, I knew that you know, my mom was very excited about me coming to the church. And so I bring my buddy with me, and I'm like, hey, you want to come? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> very excited. We walk into the building, and um, I can't tell you what they were talking about that night. But I remember um, just continuously seeing that illumination in the room and feeling this sense of hope for some reason, just like this sense of love. Um, and this man walks over to me, and uh, he, he starts talking to my mom, and, and uh, they, they start praying or whatever they're doing. I start talking to my buddy, and uh, he walks over, and he taps me on the shoulder, and he's like, hey, you know, my name's Candido. How are you? Very loving, very nice guy. And he says to me, um, so let me ask you a question. Um, how would you like to accept Jesus into your heart? And I look at him like, no. <laughs> you see, I, I, uh, I, had, um, I had like these uh, hopes of grandeur when I came home, right? I was going to go back and I was going to do things better than I did them the first time, just not make the same mistakes, right? And uh, so these visions of grandeur are running through my mind. And then this man is telling me to do this thing. And so I've always liked to identify myself as somebody that tries to keep it as real as possible. And you're asking me to now follow this Jesus that you're following when I have these plans, these other plans. And I explained this to him. I look over at my friend and I'm like, what do you think, man? And he's like, don't do it, man. Don't do it. Don't do it, bro. And I'm like, I said, man, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't. I said, um, I, can't, I can't live that kind of lifestyle right now. Uh, I'm only 19. I'm about to be 20. You know, there's some things I need to catch up on. And, uh, you know, this whole Jesus thing is not my vibe right now. And he says to me, what if I told you you don't have to do anything? You don't have to change anything. Just accept them into your heart tonight. I go over to my friend again. He's still, don't do it, bro. And it's not that, I don't think, he was just looking at me like, bro, like these people are crazy. Like, don't do it. That's why when we heard uh, the song earlier, though, none go with me, Right? It's funny because he was with me and didn't come with me, but um, I love Chris. I hope, you know, I hope he's somewhere out there right now listening, but um, that night I, ended up, I did end up giving my life to Jesus. And uh, what would ensue after that was, is an amazing journey. I uh, remember um, directly after that um, trying to go visit some people that I had last seen and I remember walking into the building or the room, and everybody's so happy to see me, and they're like, 
you know, all the people that didn't come visit me, by the way, um, they're all so happy to see me. And I remember walking into this room and uh, feeling like this really heavy spirit. I mean, just like, like literally like the 800-pound gorilla on your back. And uh, I had gotten paired up in church, actually, right away with uh, a mentor. And I remember calling him, and I said, hey, Francisco, I said, something's wrong. I said, you know, I went to do this thing, and I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, something's just, something's just not right. And he said, that's the Holy Spirit. So that's the Holy Spirit. Get out of that place. I took off. Never went back. I want to talk about a time where, where I, I really generally don't get to speak. Generally, I would have closed around this time. Um, but I hope that this serves to encourage you. Because the, the, the vehicle that, that Jesus used to show me his love was the body of Christ. I remember coming into this place and being loved by people that I couldn't explain why they loved me so much. I couldn't even understand why they would want to love me so much. I mean, here you had these people that were giving me cell phones and uh, things and just love and just attention that I had never had. And, and, and whereas in the streets, all of my my role models were drug dealers and murderers. Now, all of a sudden, I have doctors and lawyers and, and, and pastors just loving on me in a way that I didn't think was even possible. Even though I had accepted Jesus into my life, life continued, right? And I remember the time came where I was faced with the, the reality of you don't work, you don't eat, Right? And I went out there looking for employment, forgiven, right? I was forgiven. I accepted the Lord. He has forgiven me of my sin. But society wasn't so forgiving. I would walk into these places, and they would look at me, and they see this little jolly kid, and they look down the resume, and as soon as they get to that section, they will call you back. Never got a call back. And I became very discouraged. And it got to the point where we talked about the consignment guys, right? I said, man, I got to eat somehow. I got to live. I'm trying. I'm doing the best that I can. But it's just not working. And I got to a point where um, I, was walk I walked into, I had gone to 125th Street. And I was um, just applying literally at every single place that had a door. I would go in there, fill out an application. And I remember I was standing in um, Old Navy. And I asked uh, the manager, are you guys hiring? And she says to me, yes. Um, she says, let me get you an application. So I fill out the applications, all still on paper. And uh, I write everything up. And she's sort of like asking me questions like when you can start, but reading the resume as she's going. She's like, yeah, so when would you be available? And then she gets to that section again. And I knew where she got because her eyes were like, kind of like, it's the, that section is like towards the bottom of the uh, application. And uh, she gets there and she's like, so we'll call you back. And I walked away defeated again. I often say in a life full of disappointments, these disappointments were nothing new to me anymore. And so I resolved that day to go back to what I knew. 
But here comes Francisco. And he calls me. And he's like happy as always. He's like, brother, I love you. How are you? And I'm like, I'm about to go sell drugs. <laughs> I, didn't say, I didn't say that to him. I said, I said hey, hey, you know, hey, Francisco, how you doing? He was like, I've been trying to reach you. I said, why? He's like, this brother Pablo in the job uh, at the church, he, uh, he was offered this job, but he got another job. So he, he, uh, he called me, and I thought of you. And I said, oh, yeah, where is it? He's like, it's at Mount Sinai Hospital. I'm like, dude, I can't get a job in Old Navy. How am I going to get a job in a hospital? And um, I, I ended up uh, going anyway because, you know, Francisco convinced me that God is good and if, you know, when he opens the door, no man can close it. And so I walk over and um, uh, I get back on the train. That I had to go that same day to, to this job site. And uh, it, was, it was actually a warehouse owned by Mount Sinai Hospital. And so uh, shout out to Brian. We were talking about that yesterday, uh, doing a move together. Um, this was my, my warehouse experience. I walk into this place, and the guy, because he knows I'm coming from the church, he says to me, um, you know, when can you start, man? He's like, I like you. You're, good, you're, good, you're a good kid. And I'm like, dude, you don't know anything about me. So I start. Mind you, I'm, I, 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 I'm going to start in a couple of days, but I haven't even filled out an application yet. And so I go to fill out this application. At the time, Mount Sinai Hospital was actually merged with NYU Hospital. And so I had to go down to 34th Street, and I went to NYU, and I fill out the application, and then we get to that section again. And um, I said, you know what? This time, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to say yes. Not a good idea. Because it's a hospital, um, they fingerprint you. And uh, those records came back. And now here I was in a situation where I get called to human resources, and they say to me, um, we have a problem. They said, uh, you know, we, we called your supervisors. They love you, um, but you lied on your application. And because of that, your, your employment here is going to be terminated. At this point in my life, I have a parole officer still, and the parole officer learns of the situation. Now, when I came home, my parole officer did tell me that because I had a youthful offender, I didn't need to put that on my application. But I knew that the second charge that I had carried with me as far as a felony was concerned. So I knew that I was lying if I put no on the application. My parole officer says to me, let me, let me, let me do some things. Let me, let me try some things. My parole officer, now this is unheard of. This man goes to Mount Sinai Hospital. Letter in hand, he walks in there and he says, I'm sorry. I've never had a kid like this. He says, whatever is happening with this kid, I don't know. He says, I've been a parole officer for 20 plus years at this point. And this kid, there's just something different about him. Give him another shot. Give him another chance. And the favor of God showed that day. Even though I lied, even though I did something that I shouldn't have done, Yet again, God blessed me that day. And the man had mercy on me. I would end up leaving Mount Sinai eventually, and uh, I would end up going to the nursing home where my mom worked. Um, I went in on a very entry-level position. Um, mind you, again, this is the kid who 
missed a lot of precious years, didn't have any real skills necessarily because when I had, you know, I had gotten my GED while I was in prison, so I had, you know, didn't even have a high school diploma. And um, now I'm, 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 I'm in this, you know, in this path that I'm trying to take, and the church was incredibly helpful, incredibly loving. And um, I get to this point now where I'm starting to think about my future, starting to think about a career. And uh, I walk over and uh, fill out an application to work at my mom's nursing home. I come in as a housekeeper. My very first day there was almost my last day. Um, there, was a, there was like a hazing trick that the nurses would do to you. Um, if there was any like uh, feces on the floor or stuff like that, they would, they would try to get the new guy to clean it up, pick it up. And I remember walking in this one room, and I felt really bad for the person, but I was not going to clean that up. And uh, I did end up cleaning it up. Uh, and my mom learned of it, and, you know, she came to her son's rescue, and uh, she let those nurses know, don't ever do that to him again, in the name of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Mom. Um, a year later, I would go on to uh, apply for a position in finance, and I would spend the next 10 years there, uh, God opening door after door after door. I would end up getting a degree in accounting. Um, and this is all to say that the kid that everybody counted out, God had a plan for. I want to encourage you with a scripture. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love what Paul says as he continues to read, though, because this is, this is the part that's going to really resonate with us. He says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, has, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage you, body, to never lose your first love and never lose your love for each other. Had Jesus not come into my life, I don't know that I would be here. But had it, the body of Christ not loved me and been that expression of love that God was in the spiritual if they weren't in, that, in the physical, that expression of love, I don't know that I would be here. There are many that went before me that are the reason that I, we are here today. It's why we, we wrestle, we toil, we, we love on our children, and we provide child care because those are the ones that will go after us. And we're the ones that are here laying that foundation. If John could come, I want to close in a word of prayer. Um, we talked about a lot, and there's a lot that I left out. Um, but there's obviously those of us that 
Well, let's get one thing straight. All of us here have a story of how we came to know Jesus. Mine's is just a different flavor. Mine's is just a different story. Some of you here probably have far greater testimonies, can testify to the goodness of God in ways that I can't even fathom. And this is because of the goodness of our Father. It's because of the goodness of God. And so maybe you're here today and you've, you've lost sight of that love story. You've lost sight of that moment that he came into your life, that he came into your heart. I want to encourage you this morning that God wants to tap you on the shoulder. He wants to remind you, I'm still here. Still loving you. Just like the first day. Maybe you're that parent. And you're praying for that wayward child like my mom was. Pray without ceasing. Keep praying. Keep pushing. God is going to get a hold of them. One way or another. And for the body of Christ, I want to encourage you. Love one another. Keep loving one another. Dig in and put yourself aside sometimes to the point where it's reckless love. You know, this, is a, this has been a rough week for my, my, my wife and I. And uh, I, I, I realized, that I thought I wasn't going to share this, but many of you don't know that um, we have two beautiful children. And uh, there's an incredible story as to how we even got married. But um, thank you for believing parents, right? Uh, my, my wife's parents were faced with a situation where they were going to entrust their little girl who, um, who had known nothing but church to a man who was broken. But they believed Jesus. They loved Jesus. And it wasn't easy. Took about three years to take her out to the movies, uh, and a lot of chaperoned dates. <laughs> but I thank God for that. I wouldn't trade it. Now looking back, I wouldn't trade it. It was so beautiful. But this past week, we faced yet another loss. Um, my wife and I are blessed to be parents. But we've lost, we, we lost three children throughout the last couple years. Um, and this past week, we were happy to learn uh, a few, a few um, well, more than a few weeks ago, about a few months ago, we learned that uh, we were expecting again. Wait a second. God does get the glory, though. We were excited, but having lost three children, we... Um, we didn't want to get too excited. We said, well, we're just going to lean on the Lord and we're going to lean on his will. And this past week, we learned that we lost a fourth child. And uh, I can't tell you, I say this to you because the last three times, I remember saying, if this happens again, I don't know what happens. I said, God, this is like messed up, man. Why does this happen? And people have told me things like, God does all things. There's a, there's a purpose for this. I said, this is just cruel at this point. The reality is that we live in a fallen world. The reality is that things do happen. And I don't believe that God caused this to happen. 
But I believe that God is going to see us through as he's always seen us through. I can't even begin to tell you the sense of comfort that I've felt this week knowing that I'm not going through this alone. And so what I want to leave with you today is that, A, you're not alone. And B, that if you're going through something, lean on him. He can take it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that when I wasn't deserving, Lord God, you still came running after me in love, Lord Jesus. And I'm mindful, Lord God, of everyone in this room, Lord, be it in this room or watching today, Lord Jesus. I'm mindful of how much you love them, Lord God. And you've entrusted us, Lord God, with the great commission, Lord Jesus, to tell people of your love, Lord Jesus, to tell people that you care, Father, that you're a friend that's closer than a brother, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, I pray today, Lord God, that if anyone want to be in Christ, Lord Jesus, that they would know, Lord God, that today they could be a new creation, Lord God, that they could walk in glory with you, Lord God, reconciled to you, Lord Jesus, to what you did on the cross, Lord God. And, Father, I lift up any parent in this room today, Lord Jesus, any parent that is at their wit's end, Lord Jesus, Remind them today, Lord God, of your love, Lord Jesus. That you are the ultimate parent, Lord Jesus. And that, Father, you've seen that, those tears. You've seen those cries, Lord God. And you're going to answer them, Lord Jesus, in your timing, Father. Help us to wait on you, Lord God, in a way that we don't know how sometimes. Help us to wait on your, lean not on our understanding, but lean on your understanding, Father. Knowing, Lord, that you are completely able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, Lord. And I thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.